Chapter 71 of The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties, by Fanny Burney. Chapter 71 Her head bowed low, her bonnet drawn over her eyes, ignorant what course she took, and earnest only to discover any inlet into the country by which she might immediately quit the town, Juliet, with hurried footsteps and trembling apprehensions, became again a wanderer. She passed through various streets, but, unacquainted with London, read, without any aid to her purpose, their names, till, printed in large characters, her eyes were struck with the word Piccadilly, and presently she was accosted by an ordinary man, who had a long whip in his hand, and who, holding open the door of a carriage, asked whether she would have a cast, saying that he was ready to set off immediately. Finding that the vehicle was a stage-coach, she eagerly accepted the proposal, and seated herself next to an elderly woman. The man demanded whether she meant to go all the way. She answered in the affirmative and, to her inexpressible satisfaction, was driven out of London. Not to risk discovering to her fellow-travellers so extraordinary a circumstance as that of beginning an excursion in utter ignorance where it might end, she forbore asking any questions, and left to time of her alighting at the spot to which the stage was destined her own acquaintance with her local situation. It was not, therefore, till she descended from the coach, that she found that she had taken the road to Bagshot. The immediate plan which, in her way, she had formed, was to enter the first shop that she saw open, thence to ride to Gabriella, and then to stroll on to the nearest village, to lodge herself in the first clean cottage which could afford her a room. The side, however, of the Salisbury stage, gave her a desire to travel instantly further from London, and she asked whether there were a vacant place. She was immediately accommodated, and her journey thither, though long, and passed in dreadful apprehension, was without accident or event. Arrived at Salisbury, she quitted the machine, and her fellow-travellers, with whom she had scarcely exchanged a word, and hoping that she was now out of the way of pursuit, she put her plan into execution, by writing a tranquillizing line to Gabriella from a stationer's shop, and then set forth in search of a dwelling. This was by no means easy to find. A solitary stranger, bearing her own small baggage, after travelling all night, was not very likely to be seen but with eyes of scrutiny and suspicion. Yet her air, her manner, and her language made her application always best received by the upper class of tradespeople, who were most able to discern that such belonged not to any vulgar or ordinary person. But when they found that she inquired for a lodging, without giving any name or any reference, they held back alike from granting her admission, or forwarding her wish by any recommendation. The evident caution with which she hid as much as possible of her face, made the beauty of what was still necessarily visible, create as much ill opinion as admiration, though the perfect modesty of her deportment rescued her from receiving any offence. 
in the smaller shops, and by the meaner and poorer sort of people, her carrying her parcel herself, levelled her, instantly, to their own rank, while her demand of assistance, her loneliness and even her loveliness, sunk her far beneath it, in their opinion. And almost with one accord they bluntly told her that she might find a lodging at an inn. Helpless, distressed, she wandered some time in this fruitless research, too much self-occupied to remark the buildings, the neatness, the antiquities, or the singularities of the city which she was patrolling, till her eyes were caught by the little rivulets which, in most of the streets, separate the footpath from the high road, by perceiving two ruddy-cheeked, smiling little cherubs, attempting to paddle over one of them, and playing so incautiously that they seemed every moment in danger of falling into the water. She hastened towards them, to point out a bridge, somewhat higher up, by which they might more safely pass. But the elder child, a rosy boy, careless and sportive, heeded her not, till finding the stream deeper than he expected, his little feet slipped, and he would inevitably have been under water, had not Juliet, with dexterous speed, caught him by the coat. She aided him to scramble out, though with much difficulty, for he was wet through, and covered with mud. Frightened out of his little senses, he set up an unappeasable cry, in which the other child, a pretty little girl, impelled by babyish though unconscious sympathy, joined, with all the vociferation which her feeble lungs were capable of emitting. Juliet, with that kindness which childish helplessness ought always to inspire, soothed them with gentle words, and persuaded the boy to hasten to his home, that he might take off his wet clothes before he caught cold. But they both sat down to cry at their leisure, though rather as if they did not understand than as if they resisted her counsel. Pitying their simple sufferings, she offered the boy a penny to buy a gingerbread cake if he would rise. Quick, or rather immediate now, was the transition from despondence to transport. The boy not merely wiped his eyes and ceased his sobs, but, all smiles and delight, began a rapid prattling of where he should buy, and of what sort should be his cake, while every word, rapturously, though indistinctly, was echoed by the little girl, not less slack in reviving. The elasticity, however, of their little persons, kept not entirely pace with that of their spirits. The wet attire of the boy, which his seat on the dust had rendered as heavy as it was uncomfortable, nearly disabled him from rising, and his little sister, who had lost one of her shoes in the rivulet, had run a thorn into her foot, and could not stand without crying. The children were not able to give any account of who they were that was intelligible, nor of whence they came, save that it was from a great, great way off. Unwilling to leave them in so pitiable a plight, Juliet, observing that the street, which led out of the town, was empty, looked for a clean spot, and bending upon one knee, had just drawn out the splinter from the foot of the little girl, when the sound of the voice of a female, who was approaching, calling out, 
Here I be, my loveys. Here comes Mammy. So miraculously electrified the little creatures, that, forgetting all impediment to motion, they bounded up delighted. The boy no longer sensible to the weight of his wet garments, nor the girl to the tenderness of her hurt foot, and both capered to embrace the knees of their mammy, whose eyes alone could return their caresses, her hands being engaged in holding a heavy basket upon her head. But when she perceived their condition, she anxiously demanded what had happened. They both again began grievously to cry, while the boy related that he had been drowned, but that the Judadi, good lady, had come and saved his life, and the little girl, interrupting him every moment, kept presenting her foot in telling a similar story of the kindness of the Judadi. To Juliet scarcely a word of their narrations was intelligible, but to the ears of their mother, accustomed to their dialect, their lisping and their imperfect speech, these prattling details were as potent in eloquence as the most polished orations of Cicero or Demosthenes are to those of the classical scholar. The gratitude of the good woman for the services rendered to her little ones was so warm and cordial that she cried for joy in pouring forth blessings upon the head of Juliet, for having lent so friendly a hand, she said to her poor boy, and having done what she called so neighborly a kindness by her dear little girl. She had directed her children, she said, to go straight to Dame Gosse's, beyond the turnpike, having had business to transact at a house which they could not enter. But the little dearies were not yet come to their memory, and, but for so good a friend, the poor loveys might have lain in the wet and the mud till they had been half-choked. Seeing the children thus safely restored to their best friend, Juliet meant to continue her solitary search. But the good woman, judging from her kind offices, that there was nothing to fear from her disdain, and concluding from her parcel that there was nothing to respect in her rank, frankly demanded her assistance for helping on the children as far as to the turnpike, simply adding that she would do as good a turn for her in requital another time but that her basket was heavily laden, and the poor little things, one without its shoe, and the other in wet clothes, would be but troublesome, in such a broiling sun, to pull all the way by her petticoat. Cruelly experiencing want of succor herself, Juliet, always open to charity, was now more than usually ready to serve or oblige. With the utmost alacrity, therefore, complying with the request, she deposited her packet in the poor woman's basket, bound her pocket-handkerchief round the foot and ankle of the little girl, and then, taking a hand of each of the children, and gently alluring them on, by lively and playful talk, she conducted them to the turnpike, without any other difficulty than some fatigue to herself, which was amply compensated by the pleasure of helping the little innocents, and their affectionate mother, joined to the relief to her own feelings, afforded by a social exercise that drew her, for a while, from her fearful reflections. The woman, charmed by such kindness, begged to have the direction of Juliet that she might call to thank her when next she came to Salisbury, whither some business commonly brought her every four or five months. 
Juliet was obliged to confess herself a mere passenger, but asked in return the name and address of her new acquaintance. Marjorie Fairfield, she answered, was her name, and she lived afar off in the new forest. She was going, in a friend's cart, to Romsey, and there her husband would meet her and carry her little girl. She could never come out without her children, if she were ever so heavily laden, for her husband was at work all day, and there was nobody to take care of them in her absence. A ray of pleasure now broke through the gloomy forebodings of Juliet. There seemed to her an opening to an asylum, during the period of her concealment, fortunate beyond her hopes, to lodge with a rustic family of this simple description, in so retired and remote a spot, promising all the security and privacy that she required, with fine air, pleasant country, and worthy hosts. A very few inquiries sufficed to satisfy her, that she might find a small room, in which she could sleep, and a little further discourse procured her all the details necessary for learning the route to the dame's cottage. She forbore, nevertheless, hinting at her design, that neither trouble, expense, nor preparation might precede her arrival. She regretted her inability to accompany these new friends at once to their home, but her letter to Gabriella had desired that the answer might be directed to be left at the post-office at Salisbury till called for, and she was too uncertain what her position might be in the new forest, to hazard any change of address. She was deeply anxious to hear from Gabriella, and to learn whether she had herself been sought since her flight. When they reached the small, mean house of Dame Goss, beyond the turnpike, the expected cart was not yet arrived, and Juliet, being kindly invited to take a little rest, ventured to solicit, from her new friend, a recommendation to a cheap lodging, with some honest hostess. Enchanted to be able to serve her, the poor woman immediately said that she could nowhere be better than in that very house and, when its mistress made various objections, first that she had not a room unoccupied, next that she had no spare bed, and then that her husband would be angry, the zealous Dame Fairfield obviated them all. The room, she said, with a significant nod, where they kept their boxes, would be never the worse for being slept in a few nights, now all the boxes were empty, and the bed she had had for herself the last winter, could be easily carried upstairs, for she would stop to carry it with her own hands. And as to Master Goss, he was so fond of her little dearies, that he could not have so bad a heart as to be off doing a service to a gentlewoman who had been so kind to them. This eloquence was all sufficient. The real obstacle, that of aiding an unknown traveller, occurring neither to the advocate nor to the opponent. Free from the niceties of custom in higher life, and unembarrassed by the perplexities of discriminating scruples, the good women, often lonely travellers themselves, saw nothing in such a situation to excite distrust, and regarded it therefore simply as a claim upon hospitality. To have manifested good nature was sufficient to procure credit for good character, and to have done kind offices was to secure their return. Dame Fairfield busily set about putting into order a little apartment, that was encumbered with trunks and boxes, which she piled one upon another, to make a place for a small bed. 
she would suffer no one to give her any help, sweeping, dusting, rubbing, and arranging all the lumber herself, with an alacrity of pleasure, a gaiety of goodwill, that charmed away, for a while, the misery of Juliet, by the consoling picture thus presented to her view, of untaught benevolence and generosity, a picture which must always be pleasing to the friend of human nature, however less exalting, than when those qualities, as the cultured fruits of religion and of principle, are purified into virtues. In this mean little lodging, to avoid being seen or heard of, Juliet passed three days self-enclosed, with no employment but that of writing long letters to Gabriella, which, eventually, were to be sent by the post, or delivered by herself. This, however, not filling up her time, the wish of obliging, joined to a constant desire of acquiring, in every situation, the art of being useful, that art which, more than wealth or state or power, preserves its cultivator from wearying either himself or those around him, led her to bestow the rest of the day in aiding the woman of the house in sundry occupations. To have seen and examined the famous cathedral, to have found out the walks, to have informed herself of the manufactures, and to have visited the antiquities and curiosities of this celebrated city and its neighborhood, might have solaced the anxiety of this moment. But discretion baffled curiosity, and fear took place of all desire of amusement. She could only regale her confinement by the hope of soon obtaining her freedom in an innocent and beautiful retreat, and remained, therefore, perfectly stationary, till she conceived that an answer might be returned from Gabriella. On the evening of that day, she prevailed upon Dame Goss, whose mornings were all engaged, but whose good will she had now completely secured, to be her messenger to the post-office. Without any letter, however, the messenger returned, though with an acknowledgment that one was arrived, but that it could only be delivered to Miss Ellis herself, or to a written order with a receipt. Juliet was immediately preparing to write one when Dame Goss said, "'They do tell me that you be a person advertised in the London newspapers. It been true, be it?' "'Good heaven, no!' Juliet ejaculated. "'Pray, be you the person called commonly known by the name of Miss Ellis?' Juliet, changing colour, asked why she made that inquiry. The woman, instead of answering, looked earnestly in her face, with an air of steadfast examination. In the greatest dismay, Juliet turned from her, without hazarding another question, and was going upstairs, but Dame Goss begged that she would just stop a bit, because two persons were coming, that she had promised should have a peep at her. Shocked and terrified, Juliet would still have passed on, but an instant sufficed to tell her that, in such an emergency, not to make some immediate attempt to escape, was to be lost. Turning, therefore, back, Dame Goss, she cried, slipping a crown piece into her hands, with an apology for giving her so much trouble. Hasten again to the post-office, and say that I shall come for my letter myself. The woman, without question or demure, received the money and set off. 
and she was no sooner out of sight than Juliet, taking her own small packet, unnoticed by Master Goss, who was at work in his little garden, went forth by the opposite way, turning, as quickly as possible, from the high road where she might most naturally be pursued, and, for all else, committing her footsteps to chance and to hope, those last, and not seldom, best friends of distress and difficulty. Wandering on, by paths unknown to herself, with feet not more swift than trembling, fearing she was followed, yet not daring by a glance around, to ascertain either danger or safety, she overtook a young village girl, who was hoidening with a smart footman, but who caught her attention, by representing to him that, if he detained her any longer, she should miss the return chaise, and not know how to get back to Romsey, for her mother would be too angry to wait for her even a moment. The sound of Romsey revived the spirits of Juliet. If she could join this young person, she might find a conveyance, equally unsuspected and expeditious, to within a mile or two of the very spot where she hoped for concealment. She loitered, therefore, in sight till the footman retreated, and then, following the girl, though with affright, by returning to the town, she soon found herself in the churchyard of the cathedral, where the damsel encountered her waiting mother, with whom, boldly defying her wrath, she began sturdily to wrangle. Juliet stood aloof during the altercation, still hoping to accompany them in their route, the beautiful Gothic structure before her, the latest and finest remains of ancient elegance, lightness, and taste, was nearly lost to her sight, from the misery and preoccupation of her mind, though appearing now with peculiar effect, from the shadows cast upon it by the rising moon. Yet soon, in defiance of all absorption, the magnetic affinity, in a mind natively pious, of religious solemnity with sorrow, made the antique grace of this wonderful edifice catch, even in this instant of terror and agitation, the admiring eye of Juliet, whose mind was always open to excellence, even when most incapable of receiving any species of pleasure. She leaned for a moment's repose in a recess of the building, which the shade rendered dark, nearly sinking under the horror of pursuit, and the shame of eluding it. To find herself advertised in a newspaper, the blood mounted indignantly into her cheeks, perhaps to be described, perhaps named, and with a reward for her discovery. Cold from them, at this surmise, the blood again descended to her heart. Yet every feeling was transient, that led not to immediate escape. Every reflection was momentary, that turned not to personal safety. The dispute between the mother and daughter was interrupted, not finished, by the reappearance of the footman, who told them that the position was just going off. They scampered instantly to an inn, from the gateway of which a post-chaise was issuing. Juliet, who had pursued, now joined them, and proposed making one in their party. The women neither refused nor consented. They renewed their contention, and heard only one another. But the postillion, to whom Juliet held out his half-crown, 
gave her a place with readiness, and she was driven to Romsey. End of chapter 71 Recording by Roxana Nazari